So welcome everybody. Um, today it's a pleasure to welcome Jules Hol Holroyd from the University of Sheffield. Um, Jules' focus of interest is in the question of injustices that are organised around race and gender and how those injustices are sustained. And as you know, she's written a lot about implicit bias. Um, she's now a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Sheffield and involved in a Leverhulme project, well, Principal Investigator, right, of a Leverhulme project um, about bias and blame. So I think we're hearing perhaps a, a paper which sort of slightly uh, crosses over those two topics. The title is What Do We Want from a Model of Implicit Cognition? And I hope you all have a handout. So Jules, thank you for coming. Thank you. Over to you. Thanks very much, and thank you very much for the invitation to be here. OK, so um, this paper is about how we should understand implicit cognition. And in particular, a part of our implicit cognition with which philosophers have recently been much preoccupied, namely implicit biases. So the main aim of this paper is to evaluate recent philosophical accounts of implicit bias. But what is this phenomena, implicit bias, that these accounts are trying to capture? Let's start with some examples that help us see the contours of the phenomena at issue. So imagine, and this might not take much imagination for some of you, um, that you're engaged in a job search and you're evaluating the CVs of various candidates. Now, of course, you're committed to fair treatment. You're committed to anti-racism and non-discrimination. And given this, then, we'd expect that your evaluation of the application materials to be guided solely by the quality of the materials in front of you. But if we're like the participants in Davidio and Gartner's study, it's likely that, in fact, the evaluation of the CVs would be affected by the race of the applicants. So in that study, identical CVs were evaluated differently depending on the racialized name on the CV. Or imagine, well, we want to know then what explains that discriminatory judgment. What is the phenomena that we can appeal to in explaining the discriminatory judgment given the explicit non-discriminatory attitudes of the individuals. Imagine then your interpersonal interactions. Again, since we're committed to fair treatment, non-discrimination, anti-racism, we'd expect that the extent to which we're warm and attentive in interpersonal interactions not to vary depending on the race of the person with which we're interacting. But for those of us who are white, if we're like the participants in Davidio and Gartner's later study, it's in fact likely that the extent to which we display certain micro behaviors that are indicative of discomfort and tension, such as increased fidgeting or greater eye blink rates, and the extent to which we display attentiveness measured by the, rate of the degree of eye contact, those micro behaviors are displayed to a greater degree in interracial interactions and have been found to affect the quality of the interaction. And again, we want to know well, what explains that, given our explicit commitment to fair treatment. 
psychologists and philosophers have in these cases posited implicit bias as the explanatory phenomena. Or imagine, and this might take a greater leap of the imagination for many of us, imagine you're a trainee police officer and you're asked to engage in a shooter simulation task, whereby you're told to press the button to shoot, all and only those individuals who you see who are holding a weapon. And again, given that you're committed to fair treatment, you're committed not to discriminate, you reject and repudiate stereotypes that associate any particular racial group with criminality, you'd expect your performance on this task to be guided solely by whether or not there is a weapon there. But in fact, for all of us, if we're like the participants in Jack Glazer's study, or indeed like the undergraduate psychology students in the UK that we replicated this study on, it's in fact likely that you'd be more frequently making the error of shooting an unarmed individual when that individual is black. And again, how can that be, given our rejection of the stereotypes, given our commitments to fair treatment? Well, again, philosophers and psychologists have appealed to the notion of implicit bias in explaining this discriminatory and grave behaviour. And psychologists have developed tests, implicit association tests being one amongst them. You can go online and take some of these tests yourselves if you're interested in finding out what implicit biases you have. And these tests are trying to measure this aspect of our cognition. But what is it that they're measuring? What parts of our cognition is it that's showing up on these implicit association tests? Well, philosophers have recently developed models of implicit bias, accounts of what implicit bias is, in an attempt to capture the mental states or processes that are underlying these discriminatory behaviours and judgments. So the primary aim of this talk is to evaluate those accounts of implicit bias. But we also need some tools with which to evaluate those accounts, which are not yet well developed. So the first thing that I try to do in this talk is articulate a set of desiderata that we can use in evaluating the models of implicit bias. Secondly, I introduce some test cases which can help us in seeing whether the accounts of implicit bias satisfy those desiderata. And then I proceed with the evaluation of the models of implicit bias using those tools. So let's start then with some desiderata for an account of implicit bias. What should we want an account to do? Well, firstly, we should hope that an account of implicit bias is empirically valid that it fits with our best understanding of the findings of empirical psychology. And indeed, we see this desiderata in play in the debates about whether or not we should understand implicit biases as having propositional content or as associative states. So in that debate, the theorists are trying to position their accounts and argue that theirs is um, best supported by the empirical evidence available. 
that there's some evidence which suggests we should think of implicit biases as propositional rather than purely associative. But of course, we can't always rely on that criteria because sometimes the empirical evidence conflicts. Um, sometimes the empirical evidence might underdetermine which theory we should endorse. And so we should look to other criteria as well. So another consideration we might have in mind is whether or not an account of implicit bias coheres with what else is posited in our best theory of cognition and behaviour. That's not to say that it would be a problem if an account posited revisionary states, and as we'll see, some of the theories of implicit bias suggest we need to understand them in terms of quite revisionary mental states. But the thought is that in those cases, we at least want to see how those mental states are located with respect to other um, commitments that we already have in thinking about cognition and behavior. Okay, thirdly, um, because we're interested not just in what causes behavior, but also in what this means for us as moral agents, I think we should hope that an account of implicit bias can also sit within a framework for moral evaluation. And again, this is not to say that we should want an account that determinatively generates some conclusion about whether we're responsible for implicit bias or the extent to which we're morally evaluable for being influenced by implicit bias. But rather it's to say that there are some resources in our moral judgments which we can deploy in evaluating accounts of implicit bias. So for example, if our considered judgments suggest that there's an important moral difference between X and Y, and the account of implicit bias elides or denies that there is any such difference, then I think that at least provides us with some resources. We can at least go back to our account of implicit bias and check whether we should want to introduce something that respects that distinction. But by the same token, it might give us reason to revise those considered judgments, <coughs> ultimately. Fourthly, there are various other things that we know about implicit bias. So we know that it's contingent, that the reason for which individuals have implicit racial bias is due to the fact that we exist in a racist society, that we have gender bias because we live in a sexist society. And we also know that various structural or institutional changes can be made in order to reduce implicit bias or mitigate its influence. And so we should want our account of implicit bias to cohere with these best understandings of how bias is located in a particular social and institutional context. And finally, because our attention to implicit bias is significantly motivated by the thought that we want to do something about it. We should want to be able to reduce implicit bias or limit its influence on our behaviors. We should hope that an account of implicit bias de delivers testable hypotheses for interventions. And again, that's not to say that we should expect that our accounts can tell us decisively what we can do to change our implicit biases, but just that it generates predictions about what might be efficacious in doing that, which we can then test. Now, perhaps some items on these lists you think are, are controversial. Perhaps there are other things that you think should be on this list of desiderata, and I'm more than happy to consider expanding it and having more resources available for evaluating 
a model of implicit bias. But at this stage, what I want to do is take these desiderata and use them in evaluating accounts of implicit bias. Before I do so, I'm going to introduce two test cases that will help us with this evaluative task. And the important thing about these test cases is that one of them introduces a case in which implicit bias has explanatory significance, but this case has almost has been, or this kind of case, has been almost wholly ignored in the philosophical literature to date. So the philosophical literature has almost overwhelmingly focused on what we can call conflict cases, cases where an individual's implicit bias is in conflict with their explicit attitudes. These are the kinds of structure of cases that I use to animate the phenomena at the outset. And I think there's been good reason for focusing on these cases. But I want also to focus on the role of implicit bias in what I'm calling non-conflict cases, cases in which the agent's explicit attitudes are aligned with their implicit biases. Now, to see the important similarities and differences between conflict and non-conflict cases, we can proceed with a pair of examples where implicit bias is implicated in producing some discriminatory behavior, but does so in these different ways, in conflicting agents or in cases where there's no conflict between the explicit and implicit attitudes. And whilst these are examples that I'm going to use, um, the crucial thing is that these are not mere conceptual possibilities that help to tease out a point. Um, they're also empirical realities. So there are various studies which show that individuals that have explicit racist attitudes also have stronger implicit racial biases. So to see um, two of these test cases, let's return to our example of a job search. And let's imagine that we're at the stage of having shortlisted, and that's happened anonymously, such that in the process of shortlisting, no implicit racial bias could affect our judgments. And so we're now at the position of having a shortlist, and on the shortlist are two equally well-qualified candidates. And of course, at this part of the process, it's impossible to anonymize. There are face-to-face -face interactions. And it's quite clear at this stage that of these two equally well-qualified candidates, one individual is racialized as black and another is racialized as white. Now, our panelists, the individual that we're going to use to illustrate a conflict case, certainly intends not to discriminate, is committed to anti-discrimination, is committed to anti-racism. He has beliefs that the race of an applicant is irrelevant to the quality of their work. So this individual's explicit attitudes are implicated in his intention to evaluate these candidates fairly in a non-discriminatory way. But this individual also has implicit biases, and these manifest in the kinds of micro-behaviors that I described at the outset. So that in the interview context, in the interracial interaction, this individual displays greater degree of tension and discomfort in his micro-behaviors. He displays less attentiveness in his interaction with the black candidate. 
And these kinds of micro-behaviours lead to his overall evaluation of the interview performance of the black candidate as coming off less well. And so, despite his intention not to discriminate, these differential micro-behaviours <coughs> that aren't present in his interaction with the white candidate inform his judgment, his discriminatory judgment, not to hire the black candidate, but to go for the, on paper, equally qualified white candidate. So these unintentional micro-behaviours contribute to the individual's discriminatory judgment. So that's a, a paradigm conflict case where an individual acts in a way that doesn't cohere with their explicit values or commitments. Let's compare that now with a non-conflict case. Let's imagine the same scenario. So we're in a position where a shortlist has been drawn up. There's two equally well-qualified candidates on that shortlist. One individual is racialized black, the other racialized white. Now, our panelist in this scenario is not beset by the same conflicts and, in fact, has explicit, repugnant, racist attitudes. So his explicit beliefs are that the black candidate is not going to be as good a philosopher as the white candidate. He is happy to intentionally discriminate. He doesn't want the black candidate as his colleague. So his intentionally discriminatory judgment can be sufficiently explained by recourse to his racist, explicit beliefs and attitudes. But that doesn't mean that there isn't any role in this um, scenario for his implicit biases, and it doesn't mean that in the interactions in the interview that we won't find the same micro-behaviours as a result of those implicit biases. So there might nonetheless be those unintentional displays of tension, unintentional increased rates of eye blink and lesser attentiveness and eye contact when he's interacting with the black candidate. Now in this case, those unintentional micro-behaviours constitute part of what's overall a case of a pattern of intentional discriminatory behaviour. But there are three important points to bring out of this comparison of the conflict and non-conflict cases. So the first is that implicit biases have a role in producing these micro-behaviours that affect the quality of the interaction in both conflict and non-conflict cases. Secondly, and this motivates the, the third desiderata to do with moral evaluation, although in both cases the kinds of micro-behaviours we find as a result of implicit biases are unintentional, I take it that I certainly, and I'd be interested to hear what your views on this are, think that they are differently morally evaluable. So in the case of the individual with conflicting explicit and implicit attitudes, I think in the absence of prior knowledge of implicit bias, it might be quite unexpected that they behave in this way. And certainly they would disavow this behavior were they to recognize that it was something that they were implicated in. Whereas in the non-conflict case, even, in, even prior to knowledge of implicit bias, it isn't a great, doesn't take a great leap to imagine that your explicitly racist behavior would inflect your habitual and automatic responses. And moreover, this individual wouldn't disavow these parts of his behavior were he aware that they were taking place. And thirdly, 
I take it that it's clear that in terms of the interventions that we would be needed in order to prevent discrimination in this case, quite different strategies would have to be deployed in each case. So in conflict cases, strategies to reduce or limit the influence of implicit bias would presumably be welcome, and we need to just target the individual's implicit biases and preventing them from having a role in his decision. Whereas, of course, in the non-conflict case, that's just a part of the problem. We'd also have to tackle the explicit racist attitudes of the individual and countenance the fact that there might be a complex relationship between those explicit attitudes and implicit biases which might entrench and sustain and perpetuate those biases. Okay, so I've introduced the desiderata and I've introduced these two test cases. And now I'm going to use these test cases in order to evaluate whether or not the models of implicit cognition, of implicit bias, are well placed to meet the desiderata. Uh, now, in the paper, I evaluate five accounts of implicit bias, um, but uh, today this is an abridged version, and I'm just going to focus on two. Um, but there's more in the paper, so read all about it here. Um, and I also introduce another um, more complicated test case, um, which is particularly um, important in addressing some of the details of Neil Levy's account, but I'm, I'm setting that aside for the purposes of, of today as well. So in the paper, I um, address the claim that implicit biases are patchy endorsements from Neil Levy, the claim that we can understand implicit biases as a kind of in-between belief, that's Eric Schwitzgabel's proposal, I look at Edward Macquarie's claim that implicit attitudes are traits and, in fact, shouldn't be understood as implicit at all. And I also then look at um, Eric Mandelbaum's claim that implicit biases are unconscious belief and Tamar Gender's claim that implicit biases are a kind of alief. So today I'm just going to focus on the claims from Mandelbaum and Gendler. <coughs> So let's start with the claim from Eric Mandelbaum that implicit biases should be understood as a kind of unconscious belief. So on this view, um, implicit bias is modelled just as, as Mandelbaum puts it, propositionally structured mental representations that we bear the belief relation to. So the idea is they're just straightforward mental states, beliefs, but that they're typically unconscious. So how would this model play out when we're thinking about a conflict case? Well, we imagine an individual as having the conscious belief, for example, in our job search scenario, that race is irrelevant to the suitability of the job candidate. But we model their implicit bias as an unconscious belief. They have the unconscious belief that race is relevant to the suitability of the candidate. And it's their unconscious belief that's efficacious in producing the differential micro-behaviours which lead to their discriminatory judgment. Now, in support of this claim, Mandelbaum says that there's various bits of empirical evidence which indicate that implicit biases have a propositional structure. 
So he draws on evidence which suggests that implicit cognitions are um, deployed in inferentially sensitive ways, suggesting that some parts of our implicit cognitions have propositional content. So he's arguing, one of the main arguments for his account is that it meets this criteria of empirical validity. How does it fare with respect to some of our other desiderata? Well, clearly, it coheres with other posits in our theories of cognition. It's just positing beliefs. And so if we have a satisfactory account of what beliefs are and how they function, there's nothing mysterious about this um, aspect of Mandelbaum's account. If we have a framework for thinking about the moral evaluation of beliefs, we could draw on, for example, Pamela Hieronymi's work on the extent to which our beliefs are morally evaluable. Then we've got a framework into which we can plug this account of implicit bias. And Mandelbaum is also emphatic that one of the normative implications of his account is that it generates some um, proposals for intervening into, in reducing implicit bias, um, namely that we should deploy the kinds of reasoning processes that beliefs can be changed with. And he's emphatic that we need to be alert to this, and if we just proceed on the basis that implicit biases are associative, then we, we lose this resource um, if we only focus on the kinds of counter-conditioning or retraining processes that people who have endorsed the claim that they're associative support, um, support and endorse. So this account then generates certain testable hypotheses about how we could intervene with implicit bias. I do as well. We should expect that they're changed in the way that we change beliefs, by reasoning processes, perhaps. So at first glance, it looks like Mandelbaum's account is faring quite well according to our desiderata. But what does it say in relation to a non-conflict case, a case where the agent's implicit attitudes are aligned with their explicit attitudes? And this is not a case that Mandelbaum um, considers because, as I've said, most theorists writing on this have not considered non-conflict cases. So what would we say in this case? How would we deploy the unconscious belief model here? Well, one thing we could say is that there are two beliefs, one conscious and one unconscious. So we'd have to say something like the explicit racist belief that race is relevant to the suitability of job candidates is accompanied by an unconscious belief that race is relevant to the suitability of the candidates. But that seems somewhat problematic insofar as it suggests that we're individu individuating beliefs according to whether they're consciously held or not rather than by their content or functional role. Perhaps we could say, well, there are two beliefs, a conscious belief and an unconscious belief, but they have different content. And indeed, I think that story might well work in many cases. But it would be ad hoc, I think, to suppose that on every occasion on which there are both implicit and explicit attitudes at work, they necessarily have different content. And we should still know what we'd want to say when the beliefs have the same content, or when the states seem to have the same content. And of course, we wouldn't want to say that there's just one belief about the suitability of the candidate and it's both conscious and unconscious. We should clearly avoid that on pain of inconsistency. 
maybe we can say, well, there's just one belief, and it's sometimes conscious and sometimes unconscious. Well, that could make a great deal of sense. Um, I think many of our beliefs are clearly beliefs that we hold sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. My belief that solid walls are impassable is usually unconscious, though nonetheless causally efficacious, although sometimes it's consciously in my mind as it is now. But I think the difficulty with this move would be that it removes some of the explanatory power that we were supposed to get from positing unconscious beliefs in the first place. So we would, the idea was that um, in conflict cases, we can't just appeal to the agent's run-of-the-mill beliefs. We need to appeal to some distinctive kind of belief, an unconscious belief, to explain the individual's behavior. But when we try to explain what's going on in non-conflict cases, and the best thing to say, it seems, is that, well, there's just one belief which is sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, just like a run-of-the-mill belief, then it seems like we've lost what was supposed to be distinctive about positing unconscious beliefs in the first place. So it seems to me there's much more work to be done before we can be um, satisfied that the unconscious belief model has the resources to deal with non-conflict cases, uh, and that at this stage it looks like if it's unable to do that, it's not well placed to meet that criteria of empirical validity. Okay, so I'm now going to move on to consider another account of implicit bias, and this is Gendler's proposal that we should think of implicit biases as a kind of a-leaf. So we want to know, well, what are a-leafs? What work are they supposed to do? And how do they apply to the case of implicit bias? Well, Tamar Gendler has it that a paradigmatic a-leaf is a mental state with associatively linked content that comes in this kind of tripartite structure. So it's representational, affective, and behavioral. And she calls them a-leafs because there's lots of a's associated with them, so they're associative, automatic, and a-rational. And Gendler's thought is that we need to appeal to a-leafs in order to make sense of certain aspects of behavior that are quite difficult to make sense of with recourse only to the more familiar psychological states. So here's one of the key examples that she uses to motivate the idea of positing something like a-leafs. Um, if you or I were stepping out onto um, a skywalk, one of those glass-bottomed um, balconies which um, juts out over an enormous drop, of course, we, we believe it's safe. If we didn't, we wouldn't be stepping out onto it. Uh, but nonetheless, we might have certain, as Gendler puts it, A-leafs. So we might have the A-leaf with representational content. I'm really high up. We might have an effective response that it's really scary and the ready of a motor response to get off. So we might, notwithstanding our beliefs, find ourselves sort of edging back towards um, the edge of the skywalk. So again, I think we, we can only explain those kinds of behavioral dispositions with recourse to these a-leafs. One of the other cases that she uses to animate and illustrate the notion of a-leaf is that of implicit bias. So we can see how that would go in a paradigmatic conflict case. 
The individual believes that race is not relevant to the suitability of a job candidate, but might have certain a-leafs which explain their behavioural dispositions to the contrary. So they a-leave, they have a representation that they are interviewing a black candidate, and that might come with certain associatively linked affective responses, like fear or discomfort, and that might come with the readying of certain motor responses, like hostile reactions. Now what's crucial for us here is that Gendler emphasises that A-leafs can be found in what she calls norm-discordant and norm-concordant cases. So cases where the A-leaf both conflicts with or is in alignment with the agent's explicit beliefs. So given that, it looks like A-leafs could be well-placed to make sense of what we've called non-conflict cases. So if there's an individual who has a racist belief, race is relevant to the suitability of a job candidate, we can also explain the kind of automatic and habitual aspects of their behaviour with recourse to an A-leaf on Gendler's view. So that the A-leaf with the representational content and certain affective and behavioural responses of discomfort and fear, of hostility, they can be present alongside the agent's explicit racist belief. So it looks like Gendler's account would fare well according to our desiderata of empirical validity if and insofar as she's able to make sense of both conflict and non-conflict cases. Gendler's also explicit that part of the understanding of A-leaf comes with some resources to explain how we can change our A-leafs. So she emphasises that there might be ways of retraining or counter-conditioning to, kind of, to try to break down the associative links between the tripartite structures of A-leafs to prohibit the effective response that comes with certain representational content or to um, get rid of the behavioural motor responses that are associatively linked with certain representational content. So it looks like her model then is also well placed with respect to our desiderata that the account deliver certain prescriptions for, or at least hypotheses about how we could intervene and um, reduce or limit the influence of implicit bias. One of the um, considerations that this account might face difficulties with is the thought that this model doesn't in fact cohere very well with the ordinary posits in philosophy, or in our theory of cognition. Um, so A-leaves are, as she explicitly describes them, a revisionary mental state. But of course, if it's well motivated, if there's certain explanatory work that we can only do by positing these revisionary mental states, then even if it's not something that coheres at present with our understanding of philosophy of, of um, the theory of mind and our theory of cognition, well, maybe there's good reason to revise those existing models. And certainly, we could do work in thinking about how these kinds of states are located in relation to more familiar psychological states. So that would be worth doing if the positing of A-leafs is well motivated. However, I worry that it is not. So Greg Curry and Anna Aquino in a recent paper argue that we shouldn't think that there are any A-leafs. We shouldn't endorse a claim that they are sui generis mental states. And their 
they have two parts to that claim. One is that the kinds of components of A-leaf can be understood in familiar folk psychological terms. We don't need to posit some new kind of mental state. And secondly, when we find these kinds of associatively linked structures, there's not really any need to, to see them as, as linked together into some distinctive mental state. There's no motivation for positing some distinctive mental state there. So the example that they use to illustrate this, these two claims are that if you have um, a representation that a bull is running towards you, that's, we can understand that in familiar terms, you have a perceptual judgment or a perception, and that might come with certain associatively linked affective states, fear, we would expect, and we would hope the readying of certain motor responses um, to flee. Their suggestion is there's, there's no need to posit some distinctive and new mental state in order to capture these components of behavior. We can make sense of it in terms of familiar parts of our psychological theory, perceptions, affective responses, emotional responses, and behavioral responses. Nothing is gained, they suggest, by sticking them together as some distinctive mental state. So their suggestion is that it's not well motivated to posit some new mental state, a leaf. And I think that, in fact, there might be good reason to not posit such a distinctive mental state in trying to capture the phenomena of implicit bias. So the reason for this is that there's actually um, considerable heterogeneity within the phenomena of implicit bias that can be obscured by positing these tripart structure A-leafs. So it may be the case that in some instances of implicit bias, there are co-activated representations. It might be that in other cases, there are co-activated representations and affective states. And in other cases, yet co-activated representations and affective states and behavioral responses. But it's not obvious that in every case of implicit bias that we find, we'll find these three parts. In fact, we might find many other um, co-activated responses. There could be the activation of many representations. And those differences, those important differences, which might call for different interventions, would be obscured on a model which supposed that we always found the tripartite structure of A-leaf. So I don't think there's good reason for going with Gendler with the A-leaf claim and thinking that that's a good model for thinking about implicit bias. But this consideration of Gendler's account hasn't been fruitless, in fact, because I think it prompts us to consider what mileage there might be in what I call um, a minimal model of implicit bias, namely a model where we just see implicit bias as activated contents of these various kinds, perhaps co-activated representational or co-activated representational effective responses, which might be causally related to other representations or affective or behavioral responses. And my proposal is we just see how far we can get, what explanatory work we can do with that minimal model. Now, even at this stage, I think we can see that there's some work that could be done in capturing both conflict and non-conflict cases. Insofar as we've got um, frameworks for thinking about the moral evaluation of automatic or habitual behavior, we can bring those to bear on this kind of minimal model. And the minimal model is going to deliver a variety of hypotheses about effective interventions for implicit bias. 
different um, interventions might be required depending on whether we're talking about co-activated representations, as in the case of stereotypes, or co-activated representations and effective responses or behavioral responses. So I think this might be a promising route to pursue. Clearly, there's much more work that needs to be done in seeing what resources the minimal model offers us. But I want to close with two thoughts that we should bear in mind when developing this minimal model. So the first is that nothing is entailed on the characterization so far regarding whether or not biases, implicit biases are unconscious, whether they're the kind of things that it's impossible for us to have to lack awareness, whether it's impossible for us to have awareness of them. And I think this is a virtue of the minimal model. There's increasing empirical evidence that suggests that under circumstances, under certain circumstances, individuals can have awareness of implicit bias and awareness of the influence of implicit bias on their behavior. So I think we shouldn't build into our characterization of implicit bias anything to do with unconsciousness. And I think that does open then the question of where the implicit part of the model of implicit bias goes. Um, but I, I think there are big questions there about, well, what sense, if any, do we want to retain the, the notion of implicitness in our final characterization of implicit bias? Instead, I think if we are looking for a distinguishing feature of these kinds of, of this kind of phenomena, implicit bias, we might look instead at the kind of control um, that we are able to exercise with respect to these kinds of um, responses. And perhaps there are certain kinds of control we can exercise over certain aspects of our explicit cognition and other aspects of our behavior that are more difficult to exercise, perhaps impossible to exercise, with respect to these kinds of automatic responses. So I think there's much more work to be, do in, to, to be done um, in fully fleshing out and evaluating the minimal model. Those are two directions in, think, in, in which I think it's worth um, considering pursuing in, in spelling it out. But certainly in doing that work, we have these five desiderata, and we have a fuller set of test cases that we can deploy in evaluating what work it can do. Thank you.